Hi, I'm Snegda Sharma and you're listening to Three Things, the Indian Express news show. In this episode of Three Things, we talk about the government's decision to increase the dosage interval of AstraZeneca's Covishield. We also talk about the plight of Mizoram government after the Myanmar coup along with BJP's Assam manifesto. Beginning with Covishield. The government of India has decided to increase the interval between the first and second doses of Covishield to up to 8 weeks in its ongoing vaccination drive against COVID-19. Covishield is Serum Institute of India's version of AZD1222, the vaccine that was developed by AstraZeneca in collaboration with the University of Oxford. It is one of the two vaccines currently being administered in the country. According to data from its trials in other countries, the efficacy of the vaccine increased when the second dose was given more than 6 weeks after the first. Efficacy in this case is the vaccine's ability to bring down cases of symptomatic COVID-19 in those inoculated compared with those who are not. To find out more about the vaccine, the government's decision on its dosage and how it will affect the ongoing vaccination drive, Indian Express's Prabha Raghavan joined us. She began by helping us understand how this vaccine works in the first place. Covishield is one of the two vaccines that the Indian government has approved for use in its vaccination program against COVID for priority groups so far. It is a vaccine that is based on the AstraZeneca vaccine that was developed in collaboration with the University of Oxford during the pandemic. and um it follows kind of technology it uses a technology called a non replicating viral vector that's the platform that's used and how it works is they use common cold virus that affects chimpanzees an adenovirus to carry the code to make the spikes that are found on the surface of the coronavirus Once this virus is injected, once the adenovirus is injected into the body and they use a, a, a genetically modified version of this virus so that it's weakened and cannot affect more than one cell at a time. Once it's injected into the body, the cells get the instructions from the code for the spike protein. to start making the outer spikes of the coronavirus. Now what this does is it allows the body to develop immune response against the spike protein, which is basically what allows the coronavirus to infect the cells in the first place. So when the real coronavirus tries to infect you later, your body would have developed a defense mechanism against these spike proteins thereby preventing it from actually infecting your cells in the first place this vaccine recently had been suspended in various european countries as well as uh, thailand in asia because of concerns related to an increased number of cases of of people getting blood clots and other bleeding related issues with it. Now that was the suspicion that various countries had that caused them to temporarily suspend the use of this vaccine in their own programs until they could figure out whether or not this vaccine was safe 
to use or whether it caused blood clots. But it's not established so far. There isn't enough evidence so far to establish its link to the vaccine itself. Right. So what do we know from the data that has been collected from the vaccine's global efficacy trials? The first set of trial data that we have are from trials that were conducted in the UK, Brazil and South Africa. And there was an issue with the way this trial was conducted because there were some slip ups during the process of the testing where in, say, the UK arm, some of the people who were supposed to some of the investigators who were vaccinating participants had accidentally been given half a dose in the first round of vaccinations and then were given a full dose later. And so the kind of data that was coming out from the UK specifically was very different from what we were seeing in countries like Brazil and South Africa. But what we've seen now as of updated information from these countries is that the efficacy of this vaccine increases the longer you hold off on giving the second dose. So if the second dose of the vaccine was given less than six weeks after the first dose, the efficacy of the vaccine was around 54.9%. This efficacy then increased to nearly 60% if the second dose was given six to eight weeks after the first dose. And then it further increased to about 63.7% when the second dose was at nine to 11 weeks. And over 80% when the second dose was given at 12 weeks or more. This is the information that we got from the study that was conducted in the UK, Brazil, and South Africa. And so far, this information, this study has not been peer-reviewed. So we're still waiting on the final, on the accuracy of this data in scientific journals like The Lancet. There is another study that has been conducted from clinical trials of this vaccine in other countries like the U.S., Peru, and Chile. Now, that information came out yesterday, and what they had said was that the vaccine had an efficacy of about 79%, which is so much more than the 54.9% that we've seen at less than six weeks in the U.K., Brazil, and South Africa trial. But in the U.S., Chile, and Peru trials, uh, the efficacy of 79% was seen against symptomatic COVID when the second dose was given four weeks after the first dose. It also said that the efficacy in terms of keeping people out of the hospital or developing severe or critical symptoms of COVID was 100%. Now, that was the information that was released yesterday by the University of Oxford and AstraZeneca. At the same time, there is a little issue with this, or there seems to be a bit of an issue with this information, because a board that is supposed to be monitoring the data and the safety of these trials later that day ended up notifying certain U.S. medical organizations that it was concerned by the information that was released. And it said that the information that was published in these press releases may have included outdated information from the trial, which probably provides an incomplete view of the efficacy data. So now we're not really sure if the 79% at four weeks and this 100% of keeping 
people out of the hospital is actually accurate at the moment. So that's something we have to wait and we have to wait on more information for. So Prabha, what made the Indian government decide to increase the interval between two shots? And also, why only eight weeks when a 12-week interval showed higher efficacy? Would get the second dose anywhere between four to six weeks after the first dose. So what these expert groups, which is the National Technical Advisory Group on Immunization and the National Expert Group on Vaccine Administration for COVID, what they found from looking at the scientific evidence was that there's slightly more protection provided to people against COVID-19 if the second dose is given a little later than the first dose at the moment. But what they did find was that extending it beyond eight weeks didn't really provide as much enhanced protection as would be required for them to justify extending the second dose beyond eight weeks. In their analysis, they've also looked at the data from the UK, Brazil and South Africa trials that say that the second dose given after 12 weeks would would increase efficacy beyond 82%. And one of the members of these expert groups said, we looked at the information and we're not convinced. So that's one reason for them choosing not to increase the second dose beyond eight weeks. The second thing was also, given the fact that we're seeing a rising number of cases in the country, there is also a fear and a higher risk of people getting the virus if they wait too long to get the second dose. And that's something known as breakthrough infections between the first and the second dose. So if they wait as long as 12 weeks to get um, the second vaccine, then the second dose of the vaccine, they might actually end up getting COVID without having enough protection or enough antibodies developed to protect them against the more severe and critical symptoms of the virus. So that's one issue. And of course, we've been hearing about, especially from Serum Institute of India's CEO, that India has increased its demand for the vaccine far beyond what had been anticipated and had been ordered earlier. So it's clear that India wants to make sure that most of its priority population is covered before other countries necessarily have access to the vaccine. So they're prioritizing their own citizens first, and they're trying to make sure that issues like supply don't come in the way. And over here, there isn't an issue of supply because they've told Serum Institute of India to prioritize India and other high-burden countries first. Right. So, Prabha, if you can finally tell us, uh, how is this going to affect the current vaccination drive in India? And also, how is the government planning on communicating this change effectively? One of the members of the expert groups that recommended increasing the dosing interval to eight weeks at maximum had said that this information or this decision has already been communicated to states by the health secretary. And at the same time, this is also going to be reflected on the platform that patients or, or that people use to register for the vaccination. So the COVID platform, the website is now going to allow for that flexibility. So people who are applying for or registering for their second dose 
will have the option of showing up anywhere between 28 to 56 days after receiving the first dose of their vaccine. And Cohen is the platform where all of the hospitals that are administering the vaccine go and register themselves. They submit their data on that platform for the government to have an understanding of how the vaccinations are progressing. And so I believe that that is how it is going to be clarified to all of the hospitals. That is how it's going to be clarified to all of the hospitals that are participating in the vaccination program. Another potential positive of this decision is that delaying the second dose could potentially also mean that more people can get access to their first dose of the vaccine faster. And now moving on to Mizoram. The recent military coup in Myanmar has resulted in a serious predicament across the border in the northeastern state of Mizoram. The two countries share a 1,600-kilometer-long border and Mizoram alone shares 500 kilometers out of it. So far, more than 300 people have crossed over into Mizoram seeking refuge, alleging atrocities by Myanmar's military junta. On the 21st of March, the Chief Minister of Mizoram, Zoram Thanga, met Myanmar's Foreign Minister in Exile, Zinmar Ong, virtually. The meeting was held even though the Indian government does not seem too keen on giving asylum to people fleeing Myanmar due to the military coup and the crackdown on protesters. In fact, the Home Ministry even wrote to the governments of border states like Mizoram, Nagaland, Manipur and Arunachal Pradesh, as well as the Assam Rifles, asking them to identify Myanmar nationals fleeing the coup and to deport them. Mizoram, on the other hand, is reluctant to send back asylum seekers and has demanded that they be provided political asylum by the centre. Mizos and the people of Myanmar have shared ethnicities. Chief Minister Zoram Thanga decided to write to the Prime Minister Narendra Modi on the 18th of March regarding this, saying that India could not turn a blind eye to the humanitarian crisis unfolding in its own backyard. In this segment, we spoke to Indian Express's Isha Roy to understand the reason behind the Mizoram government's stance in this crisis and India's policy on asylum seekers. Isha, to begin with, if you could tell our listeners what is happening in Mizoram right now. So, as you know, Mizoram is one of the bordering states that shares an international border with Myanmar. So over the past month, Mizoram has seen an influx of refugees from Myanmar. And most of these refugees are actually uh, police officers who refused open fire on peaceful protesters. Uh, these were Burmese protesters agitating against the military coup. Many of the police um, officers and personnel did not want to comply with the shoot and kill instructions that they were given by the military junta. So a lot of them crossed over into Mizoram. Now, India and Myanmar share a 1,600-kilometer-long border along four northeastern states. That's Mizoram, Manipur, Nagaland, and Arunachal Pradesh. With Mizoram, it's a 510-kilometer border that the two countries share. And unlike the Bangladesh border, the Myanmar border in Mizoram is mostly unfenced and extremely porous and therefore relatively easy to cross. So as the crackdown in Myanmar increased, 
and deaths occurred, protests were imprisoned. The number of fleeing refugees officially in Mizoram right now is believed to be over 300. But unofficially, it is believed that the number is nearly double, over 700 refugees. But even before the refugees started coming into Mizoram, because the Mizos and the Chins of Myanmar belong to the same ethnic stock and there are very strong bonds between the two communities there were a lot of protests happening in Mizoram straight off the bat right after the military coup happened on February 1st the Mizo Zerlai Paul which is an apex Mizo students body on February 3rd organized a sit-in demonstration in Aizol which is the Mizoram capital in solidarity with the people of Myanmar and especially with Chin population of Myanmar. A week later, there was another solidarity meeting which was held with the students, with the same students' body, along with Chin Welfare Organization in the state, Zo Reunification Organization, Mizo Students Union, and other NGOs. And other protests have been happening in Aizol as well as across the state, especially in the bordering district of Champhai. Our have joined the movement. Singers have made YouTube videos on Burmese revolutionary songs. Painters have joined the protests. And now a large section of the Mizo community is running a social media campaign in solidarity with the Myanmar protesters. Right. So before we move any further, Isha, if you could give us a brief background of the Chin people and the kind of relationship that the community living in Myanmar and India share. So like I told you, there are four northeastern states which share border with Myanmar. But the reason why the influx happened in Mizoram is because... Mizos and the Chins of Shan State in, in Myanmar belong to the same sort of ethnic community. So they originate in this range of hills called the Chin Hills, which we often call the Indochin Hills. It is a mountainous range in the northwest of Western Myanmar, which runs along India. And there are a number of tribes, sub-tribes, clans, uh, that belong to these hills, such as Chins, the Kukis, Mizos, Zomis, Paites, Mars, Lais, Lucheis, but they all fall under a sort of supra umbrella of tribes called the Zos. So all these populations, including our own Mizo people, as well as the Chin population of Myanmar, essentially all belong to the Zo tribe. Now, this tribe is believed to have originated in China and then over centuries have migrated through Tibet to settle in Myanmar. What happened in the 17th century was many of the tribes and clans were warring tribes and their chieftains were warring chieftains. So because of this constant conflict, a number of tribes took off from the Chin Hills, they migrated to Mizoram and some pockets of Manipur and they settled here. 
and they developed new colonies new village councils and a new community nevertheless because the minisos believe that they originated from shan state in myanmar the bond between the communities remains very strong because they share the same culture the same language the same clothing a similar diet and also unlike the rest of myanmar which is largely buddhist the chin people are like the mizo people christian so they have a very strong bond of a shared religion as well right so what is the mizoram government's current stance on this issue so because of this very strong bond that both communities share and the leaders in the state as well as the administration they're all mizos and they also have the same ethnicity so the state government has consistently supported the refugees from the time that they started entering india the several mizo village council authorities have issued letters and statements affirming their willingness to accommodate chin refugees which they have submitted to the state government on february 24th mizoram chief minister zoram thanga himself gave an assurance in the assembly that the state government would be ready to provide assistance to civilians fleeing the regime but after uh, the home ministry issued directives on march 10th to all four northeastern states which share a border with myanmar to identify these refugees and turn them back or deport them on march 18th the chief minister wrote a letter to the home minister saying that the indian government's policy to deport fleeing refugees was simply not acceptable to mizoram and that uh, this was a humanitarian crisis that these were hapless individuals who were fleeing myanmar and india needed to take that into account and um, he also pointed out in his letter that the chin community and the mizo community in india were brothers and belonged to the same ethnic stock so india needed to take that into consideration as well before turning back the refugees so we know that the borders are porous right uh, people often go across to shop to meet relatives and even get married so isha if you could get a little bit into the cross border movement of people before and after the coup you know the north eastern states and uh, north eastern border is very unlike the west bengal bangladesh border which i think is most lately 60 70% of that border is heavily guarded and it's fenced and unlike the western border in pakistan like you correctly pointed out it is a political border that was drawn through a land by the british many many years ago and therefore it divides the same people so it's not just in mizoram you will find the same script playing out in nagaland in manipur where there's a lot of to and fro between these states and between myanmar we have official norms by which an indian citizen can enter myanmar in manipur per 18 kilometers in mizoram it's 16 kilometers and in both states an indian citizen can stay without a visa for 2 weeks in myanmar before they need to come back it's a nominal price i think in mizoram they charge the government charges 100 rupees 
to make the crossing unofficially what happens because there are same family clan on both sides of the border and because this border is porous there's a lot of movement which is not clocked officially but which takes place nevertheless and uh, relatives uh, visit each other and stay at, at each other's places on either side of the border for extended periods of time marriages are arranged across the border there's a music festival which takes place in at the mizoram border and there's a lot of border trade because mizoram is a very hilly terrain it's not an easy terrain and the activity to india is very limited so the mizos therefore are dependent on the border trade from myanmar to get uh, to get their meat to get their beef their pork their rice household goods blankets on the other hand myanmar has a shortage of medicines fertilizers products like this which we in turn give them so there is a lot of border trade that happens right so what is india's current policy on asylum seekers India does not have a national law on refugees unlike many other countries. India is not a signatory to the 1951 United Nations Convention or the 1967 protocol relating to the status of refugees. So what we do have is that in 2011 the center decided to circulate a standard operating procedure to states and union territories across the country that may have to deal with refugees how to deal with them how to deport them how to alert the central government about them right so finally isha if you can shed some light on the possible solutions to this crisis well it is a very tricky position for both the indian government as well as the state government the state government is under a lot of pressure from its own people because of the kind of strong bonds they share with the chin community because of the shared language religion culture there is a lot of pressure on the state government from its own people to do something for the refugees but the chief minister himself in his letter to the home minister has acknowledged that even the indian government has a very difficult position because there's certain foreign policies that they have towards myanmar that needs to be followed that they need to take into account and the indian po- government's policy towards the military junta also exists so it's really a fine balancing act i think what the indian government needs to do is sit across the table with the mizo government and really chalk out a compromise between india's relationship with myanmar and how to accommodate the refugees because the uh, mizoram government or the mizo people don't seem to be in a mood to reconcile on this issue at all because it's a very emotive issue for them so that is something that the indian government needs to heed and finally coming to the bjp's manifesto for assam The BJP on Tuesday released its manifesto for the state of Assam. The party has promised a corrected national register for citizens or NRC if it comes to power in the state. Before we move on to the other promises, let me quickly tell you about the NRC in Assam. The final Assam NRC which excluded 19 lakh people was published on the 31st of August in 2019. 
It was followed by disagreement within the BJP with the party state unit led by Chief Minister Sarbananda Sonowal alleging wrongful exclusions and inclusions in the list. The Assam BJP maintained that it will not accept the NRC in its current form. Ever since, the list has seen no new changes. Those excluded have not been issued rejection orders yet. Rejection orders are required for them to appeal to the state's foreigner tribunals. Coming back to the manifesto. Among its 10 commitments, the BJP has also mentioned several developmental measures as well as the protection of indigenous rights. The party has promised a flood-free Assam if voted to power. Under Mission Brahmaputra, JP Nadda, the party president who released the manifesto said that the party will look for new ways to protect the state from devastation of annual floods. Nadda said and I quote, "We will approach it scientifically, build big reservoirs to collect water from the river and its tributaries." Unquote. A mechanism of dredging the river from Dubri in western Assam to Sadia in eastern Assam is a part of the plan. Other points in the manifesto include mission bal unayan or free education for every child in government schools and free bicycles for students in and above class 8 and the Assam Ahar Atmanirbharta Yojana which will drive the state towards self-sufficiency in essential food items. Nadda also said that Assam will become India's fastest job creator in the country. The manifesto promises 2 lakh government jobs out of which 1 lakh will be provided before the 31st of March 2022. Another promise by the BJP in Assam is to make the state India's entrepreneurial hub. The party has said that 10 lakh youth entrepreneurs will be given a chance through the Swami Vivekanand Assam Youth Employment Yojana. You were listening to Three Things by the Indian Express. Today's show was written and produced by me Snigdha Sharma and was edited and mixed by Suresh Pawar. You can follow us and leave us feedback on Facebook or Twitter at Express Podcasts or send us an email at podcasts at indianexpress.com. And if you like the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts from so more people can find us. You can also look for us in the audio section in the top right corner of our website, indianexpress.com. 